This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 30th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. The Tea Party movement's focus is on limited government, unapologetic U.S. sovereignty, and the text and plain meaning of the U.S. Constitution. So says Elizabeth Price Foley, author of the new book, The Tea Party, Three Principles. We spoke following a forum for the book held this month. John Samples here at the Cato Institute makes a, a point, uh, and he made this pretty early on when the at following the birth of the Tea Party movement, and that is that some Tea Partiers like big government, and that is not an insignificant uh, group of people. I think the argument that you're making is that to the extent Tea Partiers are engaged with the text and meaning of the U.S. Constitution, they're going to have to make a choice. Yeah, and it's not even necessarily that. It's just that if you are engaged in the text and the meaning of the Constitution, you know that there is, in fact, um, textually a plenary um, power to tax uh, and then, by implication, to spend for the general welfare. Um, that's what it says. Uh, and so uh, there is no textual limitation on the exercise of that taxing power. In fact, if you, if you go into the original materials, uh, the, the founders were pretty clear that they thought the limitation on the taxing power um, was a political one that uh, good politics or political dynamics, accountability to the people would be what would limit um, the federal government and Congress from sort of going hog wild uh, and engaging in, you know, uh, too high levels of taxation. Uh, so if you look at programs, for example, like Medicare or Social Security, which Tea Partiers do, in fact, support, um, and you say, well, isn't that hypocritical that they support those programs and yet they don't uh, support the Affordable Care Act? Uh, it's not hypocritical at all because uh, Medicare and Social Security are legitimate exercises of the taxing power. And as a constitutional matter, they're perfectly okay. Um, whereas Obamacare is not grounded in the taxing power. It should have been. If we'd had Medicare for all, for example, it'd be perfectly constitutional. We wouldn't have had this debate. Instead, Obamacare uh, bases the individual mandate on the, the power to regulate interstate commerce. So the constitutional question is is 100% different. It is, is forcing someone to buy health care a regulation of interstate commerce? Who are the leaders in terms of defining the jurisprudence of your typical Tea Partier? Um, I don't think there is a central leader. In fact, I, I think the, the, the fascinating thing to me about the Tea Party is, um, you know, there's an old management metaphor about the starfish and the spider. Um, and that uh, the best organizations are starfish organizations rather than spider organizations because they don't have, like the spider does, a central nervous system, right? If you whack a spider in his head, he'll, he'll die instantly. So um, typical political parties, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, uh, are organized in a, in a spider-like fashion. They have an, an anointed leader that speaks for the party or at least an organization. Um, the Tea Party is not like that because it's not a political party. It is a, it is a starfish. It is highly decentralized. You can whack off one of its arms and it will just keep on going. In fact, it'll probably grow another arm. Um, and that's its strength, I think, politically, is that um, they weren't looking to anoint a leader. Everybody, you know, sort of wrung their hands uh, and have been wringing their hands in the, in the 2012 presidential election because they kept saying, well, which one of the Republican candidates is going to be the Tea Party candidate? The answer was and has always been none of them. And the Tea Parties don't want to anoint a leader. Uh, and the polling data confirms that. The Tea Partiers are, are evenly splitting their support amongst the major Republican presidential candidates precisely because they look for those candidates to espouse and embrace their principles. Uh, and when they do, they vote for them. 
Um, so I think that's a good thing because um, it means that uh, whoever the ultimate presidential nominee is uh, for the Republican Party, um, they're going to feel the pressure to, to walk the walk and talk the talk of the Tea Party. Uh, but the, it doesn't mean that the Tea Party is going to be dependent upon them. They're not going to be. It, that person still, uh, if elected president, will not be the leader of the Tea Party. And the Tea Party partiers will be the first to tell you that. You talked about foreign policy, which is something I think that divides uh, Tea Party folks quite a bit. Yes. Uh, people who uh, are devotees of the presidential aspirations of Ron Paul, for example, favor a, a less intervention abroad and a higher standard, I think, toward uh, those kinds of uh, interventions in general. Uh, you talked about how Tea Partiers were critical of President Obama uh, with respect to Libya, mm-hmm. but it was in part because he was seeking approval from the wrong source. Right. Because he was seeking approval from the UN Security Council, or suggesting that uh, sending in American troops uh, into Libya without their prior blessing um, would be inappropriate. And, uh, you know, that got up the Tea Partiers' ire because um, what the Tea Partiers do care about, and what I talk about in my book, is this principle of unapologetic U.S. sovereignty. They want a commander-in-chief who realizes that under Article Two of the Constitution, um, he or she has this uh, ability um, to commit U.S. forces abroad when, in fact, U.S. interests are threatened. And then all of the question and debate and angst amongst Tea Partiers is, when when are U.S. interests threatened? Uh, And this is where they start to disagree. So, for example, you compare Iraq to Afghanistan. Um, Most Tea Partiers that I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot of them, are not real happy with going into Iraq. Uh, And if you ask them why, it it ends up being something along the lines of, well, I just didn't see that Iraq was a threat to the United States, that Saddam Hussein was a horrible guy. He had used chemical weapons against his own people, against the Kurds, um, but he didn't seem like he was threatening the United States. And therefore, they didn't think that the commander in chief really had a legitimate reason uh, to commit U.S. forces abroad because U.S. interests weren't being affected. Now, compare that to Afghanistan. Uh, most Tea Partiers that I've talked to have actually su- uh, seemed to support uh, the the war in Afghanistan, and they do so because um, th- they start talking about well how they believe that the Taliban was harboring uh, Al Qaeda uh, and um, giving them safe harbor. It turns out that that was true, actually. Um, but when they start trying to explain why they support Afghanistan and not Iraq, it it, it is an articulation, although perhaps a rough one, of the idea that they really believe that U.S. security uh, could reasonably be affected by what was going on in Afghanistan, whereas it wasn't with Iraq. Um, And all of that comports with this idea of defending U.S. sovereignty. You defend U.S. sovereignty. Uh, when U.S. interests are potentially affected. Uh, and otherwise, uh, the, the use of uh, U.S. military f- uh, forces abroad uh, just looks like bullying to a lot of people. The House voted recently on the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank. It passed overwhelmingly with very strong Republican support. And it is perhaps one of the most naked examples of big corporate welfare. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, I realize it's, in the grand scheme of things, not a huge budget item, but it seems like even symbolically it's something that uh, Tea Partiers should have been going after because they're concerned about bailouts. They're concerned about uh, handing big chunks of money to uh, large institutions. And 
it uh, it seems odd that there wasn't more of a stink uh, raised by Tea Partiers about this vote yeah. on obvious corporate welfare. I tend to agree with you. And, and I think part of the, the reason why that happened is, you know, that one was sort of snuck in under the radar. Uh, to this day, there's not a lot of chatter about it. I don't think a lot of people are aware of it. I think when they do become aware of it and you explain it to them, they'd probably be pretty angry, I suspect. Um, but because it didn't hit the mainstream media, I think a lot of people just uh, simply weren't aware of it. Um, and, you know, it, it just also sort of illustrates that, um, you know, there's still, from the Tea Partiers' perspective, a continuing problem with the Republican Party. I mean, they're, they're as angry with the Republican Party as they are with the Democratic Party. Um, it, and they believe that, you know, all politicians, whether they've got an R or a D after their name, can't be trusted. Once they have power, uh, they simply like to self-aggrandize and they like to spend a lot of money, which self-aggrandizes again. It's sort of like a vicious circle that keeps, you know, it's a balloon that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and uh, I think this just shows that establishment Republicans are continuing to be just as sort of guilty if you will, of, um, you know, ignoring the cries of fiscal responsibility, frankly, as the Democrats. Another thing that John Samples uh, likes to say is that uh, a movement, at least in the United States, uh, can be measured to some degree by its ability to translate its energy into institutions in Washington. How has that happened with the Tea Party? Well, it's just begun. I mean, we saw what happened in the November 2010 elections, uh, you know, where we had uh, turnover of the House uh, into the Republicans' control. Uh, that was clearly led by the Tea Party movement. Um, we had six seats turnover in the Senate, uh, and we got very close uh, to turning that into the Republican control as well. Uh, and what we ended up with was uh, divided houses, right? You know, so we have a Democratic-controlled Senate, and we have a Republican-controlled House. Uh, that may be a healthy dynamic, uh, overall. In fact, I think the Tea Partiers, if you, again, if you talk to them a lot, they're, they're concerned about giving control over the, the government uh, in, the, in both houses of Congress and the White House into one political party's hands. Um, so I think there's, there's a little bit of concern about being too eager to put the Republicans in control of the government because we saw what happened in the Bush administration that didn't work out very well. Uh, and they're just equally suspicious of the political party. So until they get enough sort of critical mass of their own Tea Partier types into Congress, I, I just I think there's going to be this sort of self-regulation that says, um, let's not give the Republicans too much power. When the Patriot Act originally passed through the U.S. Senate, it did so with one no vote. He was a liberal Democrat from Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, when it was reauthorized this time around, again, President Obama being the being a, a, the president and not George W. Bush, and it wasn't immediately following uh, September 11th, uh, 23 no votes, and uh, Republicans were arguably helping lead that charge. That is, uh, say, Rand Paul and Mike Lee and those types of people. And I notice on a lot of websites of people who are self-described Tea Party candidates reading through their position papers, uh, the Patriot Act and stopping it and nullifying a lot of the powers within the Patriot Act is, seems to be a high priority, at least uh, openly among, among many of these candidates who are very strongly, I think, identified with the Tea Party. How much of that is, I don't like the guy who has control of those powers right now, <laughs> and how much of that is uh, a resurgence of giving a damn about civil liberties um, within the Republican Party? Um, I, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, but I, I do think the interesting thing about the Tea Party is that, you know, I think they were, they were a movement born of uh, economic crisis. 
Um, and if you look at the contract from America, for example, you know, it is it is a document that reads about uh, two two concerns. One is getting our fiscal house in order. Uh, and restoring the idea of limited government, restoring the Constitution. Um, and you don't see a lot about privacy concerns, for example. Uh, doesn't mean that privacy concerns aren't there um, and, and are, are starting to be articulated by the Tea Party. But I do think that the Tea Party feels like they have to stay focused to a certain extent and that they have to triage, they have to prioritize where they're going to spend their political capital. And I think they've decided as a movement that they're going to spend that political capital first and foremost, trying to get our fiscal house in order and trying to restore some concept amongst our elected officials that they have a constitutional obligation, that when they enact laws, they should be aware of the the potential constitutionality of those laws. Um, I do think as as the Tea Party matures and we go through a couple more election cycles where they become um, outcome determinative in many of these uh, hotly contested races, uh, you'll see them moving to some of these other issues with with more force. So as they sort of perceive themselves as solving some crises, uh, they'll move on to the next ones. And I think privacy is probably one of the next ones in line. Elizabeth Price Foley is author of the new book, The Tea Party, Three Principles. You can watch a forum for the book at our website, cato.org.